August 7, uh, 2011, lecture discussion number 43 on Romans 3. And before we return uh, to our uh, trudge through the hot sifting sand, uh, that is uh, quantum theory, uh, and the theological implications that arise from the construction and behavior of matter. I was talking about it uh, before to a few folks out there in the entryway. There is this issue that must be understood. The physical or the macro, uh, macroscopic uh, reality, this reality, the big reality that we live in, is operates completely opposite, if you will, or totally different than the microscopic. So understanding that the construction and behavior of matter and energy and time and space has this issue to deal with. Uh, that's very important to get through. That's what we call summertime with cliffside. Uh, it isn't an accident that I'm doing this in the summer because I know a couple of things. I know it's the only time that John and Catherine make it. And, uh, and so I get to torment them because they're gone in warm places all winter long. But also I know that it's, it really is a, uh, a time to, uh, how do I put this, to where the visitors are, are negligible. And that means that it's, it's an opportunity for me to take a lot of energy and time to get through it. Notice energy and time. Look, trust me, I know how difficult this has been. And I, I know how difficult it's going to become. And actually, I'm very proud of you. You are battling, almost every one of you. You're reading Edgar Andrews, Who Made God, uh, over and over again, which is what it takes. And Edgar would be thrilled. And someday, I would like uh, to send Edgar a, a, a notice that there's a church out there trying to get through his book one page at a time. I think that he would be, as I said, thrilled by that. But before we get back to Bohr and Einstein and thought experiments and photon trigger bombs and complementarity, entanglement and, inf- and interferometers, uh, that's what's coming. And, and listen, listen, let me say this really fast. That's technical talk. That is the terminology of physics. It isn't any more difficult than me saying to you, uh, Jack Rafter, or, uh, or any kind of construction terminology. Every field has its own terminology. And, and the terminology is developed, especially in the legal field, uh, for one purpose and one purpose only. And what's that? To make you hire them. To make it seem like it's not something that you can do, but you can do it. The terminology is, is uh, yes, it's complex. They do that intentionally. We can get through it. You learn their little system and figure out what they're really saying, and it's not that difficult. Is the mathematics difficult? Some of it is. I won't deny that. But some of it is attainable to the to high school level. And I'll make you do it. But probably first, we before we get into back to Bohr and Einstein, we've got to revisit Romans 3 and take another look at, at what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. You might remember that a while back I said something. I introduced, again, I don't say it enough. I put John 4.24 in there because John 4.24 is at the center of this discussion. I brought John 4.24 into the discussion because we're talking about the law, or we started out talking about the ubiquity of the law, the universality of the law, uh, because the law 
primarily is in a physical context. What do I mean by that? The law is primarily in a physical context. What I mean is that, for example, if you keep the Ten Commandments, or the, all of the Torah, if you will, if you keep that and you want to do that, that is something you do, and that is something that is observed, uh, that is something that is done in a physical realm. And scientific law, again, primarily, now notice I'm saying primarily, is a description of physical properties and events. Laws of nature describe observable acts by natural forces and beings. And so moral law, civil law, ordinal law. What's ordinal law? Priesthood law. Religious law. Moral law, civil law, ordinal law, scientific law, natural law. All of those primarily are within the physical realm. Does that make sense? If I have a law of motion, that's in the physical realm. I have gravity. I can, I can demonstrate gravity. Physical realm. The invisible troll that is in charge of gravity reached up and grabbed that book and pulled it down to the stage. That is what I call the invisible troll theory that is yet to be refuted. Some have their graviton theory. I will submit that my invisible troll overwhelms their graviton theory. Certainly is every bit as logical. Now, John 4.24 is not about the physical realm. What's it about? Spiritual realm. It says that God, God is spirit. He's not in the physical realm. And yet he is because he's omnipresent. God must be worshipped in spirit. It's a contrast, a contrast, sorry, between the physical I have the physical witness that is observed by man, and I have the spiritual worship that he says to do where? Matthew 6. Where's your, where's your prayer and your worship to be done? Unobserved by man, in a quiet place, shut the door. Do not be like the Pharisee, right? Do it in silence in the sense that no one is hearing you. Do not go out on the street corner. And yell and scream, drawing attention to yourself. That is pharisaical. So I have the physical in contrast with the spiritual. And now you see the law of grace, Romans 3.27. No one ever really notices the law of grace. The Romans 3.27 is the law of grace. Now what's the obvious question? Mike was talking about uh, philosophical points last week. I, I, if I have an implication. If I have a law of grace, what else do I have? I have a law of what? I have a law of works. So I have this contrast now that's developing between the law of grace and the law of works, the physical and the spiritual. See, the law of grace contrasts. I have belief and faith and grace and love and mercy. What are all of those things? Show me, uh, show me belief. See, it is a spiritual, it is a spiritual entity, belief, faith, grace, love, and mercy. They are within the spiritual realm. And I say this a, a, a lot, but not enough. It is illogical. It is not defensible for you to have a position that God, who is spirit, that he would have a works-based, a law-based, a physical-based, 
salvation system. And he says otherwise over and over again. What's he have? He has a belief-based, a faith-based, a grace-based, a love-mercy-based, a spiritual, supernatural-based salvation system. Now, let's read Romans 3.27 really fast. I know you can't wait to get back to Bohr and Einstein. But there's a context to them. And they understood it, by the way. Romans 3, 27 and 28. Where is boasting then? And that's a rhetorical question. What's implied by that question? There is no place for boasting. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. The law of grace? The law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Salvation is a spiritual-based process. Now, who, understanding John 4.24, would possibly boast? That's a question that uh, you can't help but ask when you see them boasting. Who would boast of their salvation? What illiterate, nonsensical, ignorant foolishness to boast about your salvation? I have a show of hands. How many of you are boasting about your salvation? Don't raise your hand. What is boasting about your salvation? Boasting of what exactly? What would you, why would anybody boast of their salvation? What are they trying to tell you that they're doing? And have you met them, by the way? We could all get in a small van today. No, I'm kidding. That was for the Internet, hoping they'll send us more pizza, which we've gotten. Very happy about that. I should bring it up more. But we could go to a church in a couple hours here that will start, and I promise you they'll start out boasting about how saved they are. Who would think like that? What makes you think like that? Why are you thinking like that? Now, Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I want you to reflect on that as well. I'm kind of placing them, all these things, in today, hoping that you'll see how they fit as I go through the rest of the uh, lecture. No fear of God, which means they have no awe, they have no thankfulness, they have no concern, they do not glorify God, they have no dread, they have no wisdom. Their eyes are vacant, they're non-functioning. What are they? They're blind, and they're groping about in the darkness. They're hopeless. Now, think back Sodom and Gomorrah, if you will, groping about in the darkness. They reject all knowledge of God, Romans 1.28, and God gives them over to a debased mind. He does not give them over to a debased... See, here we are again. What is implied by debased mind? What, what else could he have given them over to? He does not ever refer to... Uh, to Nefesh kaya, living souls, living beings, as physical. He always refers to us as spiritual. He gives us over to a debased mind, not a debased body. 
Their minds, these people that have no fear, no awe, no thankfulness, no dread, no concern, no wisdom, their mind, their spiritual component becomes depraved, it becomes reprobate, and they are abandoned by God. Now, that's a very solemn thing to be abandoned. A solemn thing to be given over by God. Released. That is the condition, by the way, of the world in the tribulation. It is given over to the way it wants to go. He stops doing what? He stops stopping. And so the obvious question is, how does this happen to someone? What is the steps, or what are the steps, what's the anatomy that leads to a state of mind that is reprobate and that leaves you abandoned by God? And again, in Revelation 7, 4, 16, 9, 16, 11, 16, 21, it tells of a mankind in the tribulation, in the face of overwhelming, irrefutable evidence of the Creator God coming in judgment. They see every physical sign. They are overwhelmed by physical signs. They get a physical sign every five minutes. They're pounded by physical signs. The people that say to you, if only I had a physical sign, I would believe. Well, God in the tribulation does nothing but give them physical signs. Do any of them believe? Very, very few. In the face of all of those physical signs, they stand up. Actually, they hide in the, in the caves. Oh, that always fascinates me. What's, the, what's, uh, what's everybody build nowadays if you're a leader of a country? What's the first thing you build? You build a bunker. That's right. You put a hole in the ground and there's your bunker and you're really safe there. Right? And, of course, the U.S. military has these bunker bombs that drill all the way down and explode as deep as they can. So, what, we, what do we do? We build deeper bunkers. And that's exactly what's going on. And eventually, God is coming for them in their bunker. But as they go down in their bunker, they, uh, they hurl profanity and blasphemy at God. All these signs doesn't matter. All they are is profane and blasphemous. It's a level of insanity that defies explanation, except for the one given in Romans 1.28, which is what I just read. And this insanity, as you know, culminates at Revelation 19.19 and 2 Thessalonians 2.8, where there, the Ancient of Days... The Lord God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, all one and the same. Those are all names of Christ. He comes and he demonstrates once and for all that he is creator God revealed. That is what the revelation of Jesus Christ is. The revelation is Jesus Christ revealed as creator God and that he has complete authority over all of his creation, over his physical reality. When I say his physical reality, he is the creator of the physical reality. And he takes that physical reality just like he did Adam in Genesis 2.8. Adam was formed outside of the Garden of Eden and then what did God do with him? He put him inside. We are inside the physical reality. And he comes and every mouth will now stop and every knee will bow and the fear of God that is not there on their, in their eyes is now imposed upon them. And all the nonsense ends. Accountability has come. And consequences for, for Romans 125, those have arrived. Let's read 125. Let's go back to 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie? Okay. Let's ask the obvious question. What would you ask? 
You would ask, what's the lie? And that would be a good question, but it isn't in the context. It's really, who's the lie? The lie is a person, and worshipped and served the creature. Let me put another word instead of creature. What would I put? Beast. So let's read it again. Who exchanged the truth of God. Who's the truth of God? That's Jesus Christ. For the lie, and worshipped and served the beast or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So you see the contrast between the Christ and the Antichrist there, right? The lie is a name for the Antichrist, as is the creature, the beast. But this process, this anatomy, the steps, um, one of the steps to getting to the place where you exchange Christ for the Antichrist, or you exchange the truth for the lie. One of those steps is the worship of the creation. It's the worship of the physical. The creation is the physical. Being physically minded instead of spiritually minded. You may not think that you're worshiping the creation, but if you are focused on the physical instead of focused on the spiritual, then you are in this in this trap. Ira, I tried to give away your book. Nobody wanted it, Ira, which is an indication that they were very much afraid of you. So, congratulations. Okay. If you find yourself to where you are in love with this physical world, then you are physically minded, and and that is a trap. And that's why we're delving into quantum theory. Because one thing quantum theory does is it exposes the senselessness of clinging to the physical. You are in this world, but you are not of this world. And understanding that is a profound piece of wisdom. And so we're going to add testimony today of the rocks. Because what do the rocks do? They cry out. Luke uh, 19.40, right? Rocks cry out. Stones cry out. That takes us to physical reality. We ought to ask the obvious question. What did he mean by that? How is it that they cry out? Lots of theories. (coughs) We'll give you one today. Okay, when we last left off, uh, we were discussing something relatively simple. And everyone in the class was bored and clamoring for a little more challenging exercise. Uh, You were vociferous, if I remember correctly. You're demanding a concept that was worthy of you, one that uh, reached the level commensurate with the mean intellect of the group. And if you were here last Sunday, uh, then you know that none of what I just said is true, except the parts about the boredom and the meanness of the group. And though I'll admit that some will contest the appropriate definition of mean in the given context, but I, I'm submitting to you that mean uh, is assumed mean mean, which best describes the group. Anyway, I, I needed you to laugh at that. I worked hard on that joke, 
at least pretend because we have an internet audience out there somewhere and, and they'll think that they won't know they were supposed to laugh either and, and they depend on you. Okay, here's where we're really at. We've discussed superposition, entanglement, wave-particle duality, diffraction, complementarity, and the uncertainty principle. Okay? Not necessarily in any order and all within the framework of quantum theory. Um, let me repeat that because those sound like really difficult concepts, but they're not. Superposition, entanglement, uh, wave-particle duality, diffraction, complementarity, and, and uncertainty. Okay? They have a physical definition. And what I mean by that is a physics definition or a scientific definition. How many is that? Six or seven. There's a couple of more I left out. Uh, but they're not that many. And when you get all of those, um, you're in a place now where you will understand enough of quantum theory that you could go on without me. And that's the truth. You will. You'll be able to do it, and I would encourage you to do it. But more specifically, last Sunday, uh, what we were doing was we were going over Einstein's insistence on determinism. What that means is that humans could exactly determine functions and phenomena. What is he doing? What's he focusing on? He thinks that humans can determine physical realism, physical reality. He is focused on what? On the physical reality. The determinism at its core is a physical reality-based idea. And, and he's uh, versus uh, Bohr, who is equally steadfast in, in his adherence to quantum theory, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Actually, Bohr is doing something really cool. Doesn't know it, I don't believe, but he's doing something cool. He is saying, let me turn this fan off just so I can, I can tell that it's, how do I turn it off? Okay, there's two methods now. Being a highly trained technician, there's that method or the method that throws it far enough that it unplugs itself. Either one works very, very well. Okay, Bohr, Niels Bohr, steadfastly said, I believe quantum theory and I am certain that Heisenberg uncertainty is true. How's that for a little play on words? But he was really quoting somebody else. He was quoting, I brought this up last week, he didn't know it, but he was defending the position that the Holy Spirit gave the one man who asked God for wisdom, and that's Solomon. Solomon... Uh, had long ago resolved the purpose and design of physical reality. Notice how I said that. He long ago figured out how it worked and what it was for. See, people think that, I get it all the time, that the purpose of physical reality is for our entertainment. And and I, I thought about that for a while and, and decided that's some part of that's true. One thing you don't want to do, however, is believe that physical reality has a spiritual purpose, because it does not, in the sense that, that if you find yourself saying the physical reality is all there is, you will be left with the philosophy of hedonism. We'll get to that at another time. But anyway, Solomon figured out the purpose and the design of physical reality, and he constantly refers to it. What does he call it in Ecclesiastes? He calls it under the sun. 
Under the sun is a phrase, it's almost the theme of Ecclesiastes. As you read it, you'll see it happening all the time. Under the sun, under the sun. You go ahead and translate that, if you will, as physical reality. It is the underlying theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, and he also contrasts it with the greater reality, the spiritual reality. So you see in Ecclesiastes this temporal versus eternal, this physical versus spiritual. So last Sunday, we went off into the first debate of Einstein's deterministic attack and Bohr's uncertainty principle defense. Does that make sense to you? Those are, those are, that's a pretty big sentence. I get that. Determinism is a, is the wanting that, wanting to determine how the physical reality works as well as we could to, to, a, to a certainty. And Bohr is saying no. Einstein, we cannot be deterministic. There is an uncertainty element in all of creation. And so Einstein proposed that single photon experiment with the movable barrier. Do you remember that? How many were here last week? Okay, what Einstein did is he proposed this. He said, fire a a single photon at a movable wall. So I have a wall, I have a narrow slit... So diffraction comes into play. Why does diffraction come into play? What is diffraction? It is a wave function of spreading out. That's all I have to do. But I'm firing a particle. Why do particles have diffraction elements? Why do particles spread out? They're just a particle. That's because of wave-particle duality. Everything, all matter, has diffraction because of the wave aspect of it. There's two If you will think of it this way, there's two parts to you. One part is a particle. The other part is a wave. You are thing-like and stuff-like. So I'm firing that particle and I'm going to get diffraction. And that wall's moving. It can move either this way or this way. But it's moving. And what Einstein says is, is that if I get deflection, in other words, if that particle, it comes in and hits this wall and deflects, I got something going for me now. So he fires a single photon at a movable wall that has a narrow slit. And by having the photon particle hit one side of the slit, a recoil develops. Right? Remember that? From last week? If it hits there, which way does the movable wall move? Moves down. That's right. I have an opposite resultant, don't I? A, re- a recoil in the middle wall, in the in the movable wall is a, is there now. I can and I have a deflection of the photon, and so the deflection of the photon causes the resultant opposite movement in the barrier. So I have collision, deflection, and recoil. Everybody with me? How hard is this? This is obvious, right? You can do this to who? That's right, your children. You can. You can have collision. You can have deflection and recoil. Try it. You'll find that it has long-lasting impact on them. They, they'll remember it for generations. Try to prohibit the brothers from doing it to the younger brothers. As a parent, I wasn't very good at that. And hence all the lawsuits now that we're dealing with. So. Okay, then... Einstein proposed, and by the way, I have another barrier right here that that uh, that gives me uh, some kind of re- recording of it. Then Einstein proposed by measuring the recoil. If I could measure the recoil, which is what? 
how far the movable wall moves after it's hit by the photon. Okay? How, how far does it move after I hit? How big is the photon, by the way? Not so big. How far is the movable wall going to move? Well, I'm telling you, this is, this is, I mean, I, this is a Teflon movable wall. I got a WD-40 all over the place. Huh? Movable wall's going to fly. In theory, I can make that movable wall move as far as I want, can't I? So you decide how far your movable wall moves. I'll decide how far mine. But so think in your head, the photon hit it. How far did it move? Einstein proposed by measuring the recoil or the distance that it traveled, how far it traveled, how big is your distance? Okay, you, you could have that much distance, or you could have this much distance. Okay, that's too much. There. Whose mathematical equation is going to be the hardest to work with? This is a very small particle hitting a very small slit hitting a very small uh, entity that moves a very small distance. And so there's your mathematics, right? But I can measure the recoil of the barrier, the resultant particle deflection. I can tell how far the deflection, the angle of deflection by how far the recoil of the, mo of the wall is, right? I can do that. By measuring the recoil of the barrier, let me repeat it, the resultant particle deflection angle is determinable. I can determine it. I can determine the angle based on the recoil distance. That's just algebra, which you all had to do, or geometry, if you will. Okay, maybe a little trigonometry. And then the location of the photon can be determined. How can I determine the location of the photon? Because I know the angle of deflection. I know how hard it hit because I have the recoil. And therefore, I can figure out where it goes. And now I have determined the location of the photon as it passed through the slit, or where it was as it passed through the slit. And if I know, if we know how the photon's momentum was changed, its momentum is no longer uncertain. So I know its location, and I know its momentum, and now I have defeated the uncertainty principle with respect to the Particle location and momentum, because that's what the uncertainty principle by Heisinger said. It said that you cannot know the uh, location and you cannot know the momentum or to a level of certainty. And if I am able to do that, and that's what Einstein said, quantum mechanics or quantum physics is in ruin, and Einstein wins, and determinism triumphs, and he knows things. He knows where that particle was, and he knows where it's going. Determinism triumphs. But Bohr quickly points out that the uncertainty principle, Einstein made a mistake. He did not apply the uncertainty principle to the movable wall. It's applicational to the movable wall. Einstein's cheating. He is neglecting the uncertainty in the movable barrier. How much is it moving? That's why I asked that. Which, uh, which affects the slit's location? Because if, the, if everything is, is moving at an uncertain level, I don't know where that slit is. So if I don't know where the slit is, then that brings into question the deflection angle, doesn't it? 
How much is the wall moving? How much of, of the slit is affected, the location of the slit is affected, is affecting the location of the photon now? How, again, let me go back. How much is it moving? How much is it affecting the location? If the location is affected and the movement is affected, and then I hit it, I have a collision, That my collision is now affected, and that affects the recoil. Does that make sense? Let me do it again. Einstein gave you a movable wall that he said he could do what with? He could determine the location of the movable wall. Well, that's not logical. Because the uncertainty principle says I can't know for certain where that slit is at any time or where that wall is at any time. And if I hit it with a photon, I've moved it. And I don't know where it went. If I don't know where it went because I didn't know where it was, then how could I possibly, with a level of certainty, figure out what the recoil was by measuring, or where the angle of deflection was, by measuring the recoil? I don't know how much recoil I got. How come I don't know? Because I don't know how fast it was going when it got hit. Does that make sense? So Einstein did not apply the uncertainty principle to the, his movable barrier, and so he was able to defeat something by disregarding uncertainty. He tried to defeat uncertainty by disregarding uncertainty. In addition, when the photon enters the slit, the slit's being affected by movement as well, and that's being it's being displaced. And the recoil, therefore, cannot be known with un, without uncertainty. And so all I have left, if I can't be positive of anything, which I can't be, see Solomon, I can't be positive because I can't take out the movable parts to all of this, then all I have left is what? What can I do? I want to know where that particle is going to hit on the other wall. Can I know? I can't. What can I do? i got too many moving parts. Think of it that way. I can do what? I can guess. How good can I guess? I guess pretty good. But all I can do is guess. So I can have probabilities. So, there is quantum mechanics. Probabilities. Quantum theory says you can't know that you can come up with probabilities. Einstein didn't like probabilities. He wanted to know. And Heisenberg and Bohr says you can't know. All you can do is have probabilities. Probability is all that remains. Quantum theory then prevailed with Bohr's refutation of Einstein's issue here. Solomon is right once again. And by the way, by just simply observing the photon, whatever observation system I have, I affect the whole thing. My observation affects it. I affect all of it just by measuring it. Remember last week I told you if I had, if I had a, I wanted to get the temperature of the water and I put a thermometer in there, right? And I'm holding on to the thermometer. Much better hand this week. What did I do to the temperature of the water? I changed it by measuring it, didn't I? If I start to measure and observe any, uh, 
any physical element, my observation affects it. And I don't know how much my observation is affecting the movable wall. So how could I possibly measure the recoil? I don't know how much the wall's moving. How can I possibly know what the recoil is? Let me explain it to you this way. And once you get this, by the way, the, re- the, the reward is great. I have a car. Remember, I, drove, I grew my wonderful cars last week. And it's going 75 miles an hour. Okay? And I hit it with a, with a cannon, a 50 millimeter. Okay? Boom. How much backward momentum am I going to have? Okay. Well, I can figure that out because I know the within a certain level. I know what the mass and the energy of this force is, the momentum of it. I know what the mass and the energy of that is, and I can come to a conclusion. But what if I don't know what the miles per hour is? What's the recoil going to be? Or the result and impact? I don't know. If I don't know the momentum of this, yeah, all I can do is have a probability. I have to know things to know things. And that is what Bohr was saying. You can't know all of these things. There's, by just observing it, you change the car's value. By just observe, by measuring it, you change the, the uh, bullets or the cannon's uh, value. Yes, you first. Eventually, Schrodinger. Yes. Yes. You have, by the way, you have Wheeler's cat and Schrodinger's cat. And Wheeler's cat lives... That becomes the, um, that again is John Wheeler, um, and that's next week. Try not to get ahead of the teacher. He's asking about observation. John Wheeler begins to do something that's called an interferometer, something you have to learn about, which is uh, also called uh, half-silvered mirrors and, uh, and detectors of photons. And by the way, can they detect photons? It's the same principle as a Geiger detector. Geiger worked for Rutherford. And so people have figured out a lot of wonderful things. There's also a man named Zeitlinger who, who, uh, who confirmed the interferometer um, um, of uh, Mach. And I can't think of the other gentleman's name. Zeyrinder or something like that. But we'll get into it next week. Um, that happened in 1993. So this is something that you can confirm. Yes. Okay, you you, you have a very complicated question there because uh, you have two sets of, of realms to deal with. You have the microscopic realm and the macroscopic realm. And they do not operate the same way. And that is, by the way, what is called complementarity. Complementarity explains how the microscopic world, if you will, acts in a completely opposite, that's probably the best way I could describe it, a completely different way of the macroscopic world, and yet they interact in a good way. It works. What else describe, what else am I describing to you? I'm describing your soul spirit, aren't I? You have a soul. It operates completely different. You have a mind. It operates completely different than your body. And yet they interact together. They're radically interconnected. Radical dualism. I can take quantum physics and prove to you that whoever designed the microscopic world designed you. You are a thing that is made. 
And when you understand the microscopic world and how it acts with the, with the macroscopic world, you can begin to understand how your mind and your brain, the brain is the physical machine, the mind is the operator of the physical machine, if you will. Okay? But anyway, Bohr defeats Einstein here. As I said, by simply observing or measuring the photon, the recoil, and the momentum, etc., that changes the, cal- the calculation. So Einstein concedes that the, and the uncertainty principle is saved because it applies to everything in the physical reality, and Einstein made that mistake. He did not apply it to the movable wall, and so Solomon, under the sun, is redeemed. Of course, we would expect that. But Einstein isn't done. Okay, he tells Bohr that he's found a counterexample to the uncertainty principle as it applies to energy and time. Because the uncertainty principle applies to location and momentum, but it also applies to energy and time. And so he comes up with Einstein's box. And inside Einstein's box, and I'll draw it really fast. Okay, I have a, a spring that holds a box. Inside Einstein's box, he has a clock. And it's controlling a device. And uh, let me make a better box for you. I need Christopher. Okay. And, and it has a scale here. And it has a way of measuring the weight of the box. And I'm showing you what's inside of it. There's also, uh, so I'll, I'll show you the lid is off. How's that? Does that help you? And there's a, a hole there, if you will. A very small hole. And so... Einstein conceives a complex device, this box. And it has a sliding opening, a shutter, or a sliding door that opens and and closes that little dot, that little hole. And that shutter is controlled by the clock that's inside the box. And so what he does with the box is he fills it full of radioactive material, radiation. Okay, so it's now filled and think the lid's on it, so you can't see the clock now. So the box is filled with electromagnetic radiation, radioactive material, and then it is weighed. Okay, it's weighed. And we have a weight. We know how much it weighs. How much would you like it to weigh? You can assign it to yourself. And then the shutter then uncovers the hole. So the shutter mechanism that's inside or the sliding uh mechanism uncovers the hole for a period of time. So there's your change in time, delta time. And during the opening of the shutter, what do you suppose escapes out of the box? One photon. You notice they do photons a lot. Out goes the photon. Right? In order... To challenge the uncertainty relationship between time and energy, it's necessary to determine with precision the amount of energy that photon escapes with. We've got to know that. Einstein has a way of doing it. What does he use? He uses his own formula, which is energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared in a vacuum. Okay? So he is able, using his own formula, to determine how much energy that photon left with. Special relativity is that was what that is. And that's the relationship between mass and energy, right? I have mass, 
I have energy, I have the speed of light squared. There's a relationship, a proportionality. And from, from this, one can determine that if, that the, I can determine the mass of the electron. All I have to do, I can do it with very precisely in this thought experiment of his. I know how much the box weighed, I know how much left. What do I gotta do now? I got one photon that left, what do I gotta do? All I gotta do is weigh it again, right? It's just simple. Weigh the box before the photon escapes, open the shutter for a period of time, very quick, and then let the photon escape and weigh the box again. And the box will be lighter, won't it? I'm setting you up. And the variation is mass multiplied by the speed of light. I can take that formula, E equals mc squared, and that will give me the precise knowledge of that photon, the energy that that photon left with. And plus, the clock is going to tell me the exact time at which the event of the photon's emission took place. I will have determinality of energy, and I will have determinality of time. All I have to do is simple math, and I have determinality of mass. And Einstein wins with his box. Uncertainty principle, as it applies to time and energy, he just destroyed it, he slaughtered it. It's invalid. And if it's invalid here with time and energy, then it's also invalid with location and momentum. And therefore, determinism overcomes. It conquers Neil, uh, it conquers again. And Neil's Bohr is in shock and he did not see a solution to this. If Einstein is right, it is the end of physics. And Bohr could not refute Einstein's box. He couldn't find a flaw in it. For about 24 hours. And Einstein essentially made the same mistake here. Bohr went around muttering, by the way, and contemplating until he figured I talked to everybody. And he was, he was d destitute for a while. He was really distraught. But then he figured out Einstein's mistake is the same as the movable slit mistake, essentially. What did Einstein, what was his mistake back with the movable slit? What did he not do? Yeah, he neglected to apply the uncertainty principle to the movable wall. So he had something that he knew something about. And Bohr says, no, uncertainty principle applies to everything. There is nothing you can be certain about. But Einstein established something he was certain about. He did the same thing here. Took a while for Bohr to figure it out. You see, Einstein had failed to take into account the fact that weighing the box amounts to something. What happens when you weigh the box? You're measuring it. And you're observing it. It is no different than the glass of water right in the thermometer. And that beautiful hand that I keep drawing every time beautifully. Thermometer looks a little, needs some work. It is the same as that. When I measure or weigh or observe something, I'm affecting it. How much am I affecting it? Einstein had failed to take into account the fact that weighing the box amounts to measuring the box. That affects the box. How much? We don't know. And the box is displaced in a gravitational field right now. It's in a gravitational field. Okay? 
And so I am weighing that box in a gravitational field. And I'm observing, by weighing it, its displacement in that gravitational field that it's in. Now, what happens when I release that photon? Poof, it goes. What happens? I have changed the gravitational field that that box is in. How much have I changed it? I don't know. Well, yeah, you're way ahead of the teacher again. And see, there's uncertainty in the displacement that Einstein neglects. Even if I didn't release the photon, I have uncertainty in the gravitational field. I can't be sure what anything weighs. Just like I can't be sure how much the movable wall is moving. He didn't apply uncertainty to the gravitational field. He assumed, and I made you assume, that I could get a a, a precise measurement of the box. I can't. There's a level of uncertainty to it. And Einstein neglected that again. And thus, there's uncertainty in the amount of energy in the mass of the box. And if I have uncertainty in the amount of energy that's in in the mass of the box... I have uncertainty in the one photon that got out. All I've got here is a bunch of uncertainty. Additionally, when the box is displaced in a gravitational field, what happens to the clock when I change the gravitational field? The clock changes its rate of ticking. The clock, the time which is inside the box, is ticking in a gravitational field. And when the photon is released, the displacement in the gravitational field is changed, the amount of energy is changed, the rate of ticking is affected. That clock is not moving at the same rate it was moving before that photon was released. The fact that the clock ticks at a different rate depending on a gravitational field has been proven. It was proven. Somebody proved it. Who proved it? Albert Einstein proved it. Neil Bohr uses Einstein's own general relativity theory to defeat Einstein's box and establish the quantum uncertainty principle, the relationship between energy and time. He took Einstein's own theory that time is affected by gravity and used it to defeat Einstein's box. It took him 24 hours. And so the uncertainty principle survives. Determinism is defeated again. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God's inspired word is still true. Duh. And that's very important to you. Okay? Next week, let me put this on interferometers. I-N-T-E-R. Interferometer. That becomes very important. Chasing photons around a grid of mirrors. And then I have to elitzer invade a bomb tester puzzle. So you will learn how to decide if bombs uh, work that are triggered by one photon. Okay, Elitzer and Vadim, two Israeli scientists. Feel free to look them up. 
That's very recent, by the way. Essentially what it is, is that you are the uh, quality control manager of a bomb factory. And your bombs are set off by one photon triggers. In other words, if one photon hits your trigger, your bomb explodes. Okay, so the trick is, is how can I tell the people who are buying your bombs want to know they're going to work? How can I tell the difference between a bomb that's working and a bomb that's not working by not exploding it? Which kind of defeats the overall revenue source of your bomb making factory. If the only way you can prove the bomb works is by blowing it up. I have to have a way of testing it. It is a photon trigger. I have to have a way of testing the photon trigger without blowing the bomb up. And that is the Elitzer Vedum bomb testing. And you'll find it fascinating. And it will show you something about photons and the observation effect. Why do I keep bringing up the observer effect? Because that's George Berkeley. There is nothing real unless it is observed. It's also Wheeler. But he, Berkeley put it this way. Reality must be perceived to be real. And so the obvious, here's the thing. They've, they've answered the question, by the way, the tree that falls in the forest and nobody's around. Did the tree really fall or did the tree make a sound? They've answered that question. Because if the tree falls, what's likely to happen? I'm going to have some kind of physical impact. When the tree falls, okay, this tree over here is sitting next to this tree over here. And now I'll blow that up. This leaf, is that a leaf? Kind of. It's touching that leaf. And when this tree fell, it produced sound waves that moved this leaf from that leaf, and it left a scratch. And I can find that scratch. And therefore, I can tell if the tree made a sound by measuring the depth and the length of the scratch. All i got to know is where is the scratch. i got to find it. not that hard, right? Just a few billion leaves, I'll find one. But I can answer that. That's the kind of thing that we're going to get into next week. Don't miss it. Bring your neighbors. They love quantum physics. Every one of them. Trust me. Let's rise and be dismissed.